The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Palm Sunday, we interrupt our study of the Sermon on the Mount. Hope to return to that in two weeks, but I'm looking in the messages I'll hopefully have opportunity to bring to you in this Holy Week to see a relationship of things, even though they're not from a consecutive Bible text. Today I want to see the relationship of Jesus Christ to the truth of God. On Thursday night, I propose to look at the relationship of Jesus Christ to humiliation before the world. And then on Sunday, Easter Sunday, the relationship of Jesus Christ to the greatest miracle of all time. So the word tonight, or today, is the word truth, a word spoken quite a lot about in the Gospel of John. It occurs often. I'd ask you to follow as I read this account of, we don't really properly call it Jesus' trial because they weren't legal trials. Laws were violated all over the place. They were hearings. And this is the hearing before the Roman governor, Pilate. Listen to John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation are you bringing against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves then and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put him to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say, I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said, What is truth? And after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. 
So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. This is the word of God. Baseball season starts this week. Big event for me. I don't know about you. Go Red Sox. But baseball season gives me hope that spring will actually come and the snow will actually disappear. So let me give you a favorite baseball story that illustrates a point being made in our text today. You may have heard this before, but I give it to you anyway. Three umpires were discussing their theories of how you call balls and strikes in a baseball game. First umpire said, look, it's pretty clear cut. Uh, We all know there are balls and there are strikes, and uh, each one is recognized according to an invisible rectangle right in front of the batter, so high off the ground and so wide the width of the plate. And if the ball is within that invisible rectangle, of course, it is a strike, and if it's outside, it is a ball. And so I visualize the strike zone fixed by the Major League Baseball rule book, and I call the pitches to be exactly what they are. Oh, no, said the second man. That's not the way it's done. You're wrong. Baseball is not an exact science. It's all a matter of impressions. So I watch the ball come in, and I call out, ball, strike, based on how I feel about labeling the pitch at that particular moment. And that's how you do it. The third man said, my second brother here is on the right track, And uh, I agree that ball, strike, yeah, it's up to me. It ain't nothing until I say it's something. And whatever I say it is, that's what it is. There can be no dispute. Well, maybe you guessed that the first umpire stood for the traditional view of knowing truth that civilization has followed for thousands of years. There are ways to measure what is true. There are objective standards to help us understand what is true. But then there's that second umpire who represents what we would call relativism. And he came straight out of the early 20th century schools of philosophy and education. There's no objective things. Everything's on a sliding scale. Everything is relative. It's in the eye of the beholder. And it doesn't really matter if your notion differs from mine. You have your truth. I have my truth. And maybe you didn't see how the third umpire is even different, but he's from what we call the postmodern age, also a relativist. But he goes a step further by saying it's not only that it's all sliding standards, but when I say it is what it is, I have created the truth. And it is that whether you like it or not. Now, all three of these views are very much alive in our world today, not necessarily with baseball umpires. They're very alive in universities and colleges, very much alive in political positions, alive as judges decide issues on the bench of federal courts or much lower courts. They're alive in pulpits. I wonder which of the views you think is the best way to call balls and strikes or call what is true. Christians enter 
what we call Holy Week this week, to renew our trust in what Jesus Christ did in his cross and resurrection. And of course, it's very important for us to know that what happened was true, that it really happened, that it was in history, that there really was a man named Caiaphas and a man named Pilate, and there was a John, and there was a Jesus, a living being who walked the earth. It's a divinely ordered event that happened in space and time history. It was not some heroic tragedy like Romeo and Juliet or some great play that you would go to see, but you said, oh, very entertaining, very inspirational, but just a fiction. One theologian found it necessary as an evangelical to say in the 20th century, he frequently spoke, I'm talking about Francis Schaeffer, who often used the, the words, true truth. You would say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why would you call something true truth? It's either true or it isn't. Well, Schaefer felt the truth had been so lost in his generation that he had to doubly emphasize it. Ten days ago, I went to see a play with my granddaughter, one of my granddaughters, playing a part. It was C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Many of you know that work of fiction. Really an allegory using animal characters and children to play out truths about Christ, who in the play is allegorized by Aslan, the lion. My granddaughter was Mrs. Beaver. Now, I knew I was watching fiction. My granddaughter is not a beaver, and uh, the boy that played Aslan is not a lion. I was watching a work of fiction teaching me something about truth. And I believe there are people that think maybe that's what we have in the Gospels, a similar story, and we're just to allegorize it and say, here are people, and it's not really important whether they actually lived or not, but they sort of teach us spiritual lessons. And so we can look at the Gospel of John or whatever text we're in for Holy Week and say, well, here's truth allegorized or truth as a living kind of legend. And it's pleasant to read and maybe take some kind of meaning from it, but we don't worry too much about objective truth. Well, there are people like those umpires, number two and three anyway, who are in our society today all around us, and they squawk about truth in a different voice than you and I probably do. They not only would have difficulty calling balls and strikes, but now the newest problem is you can't even tell if you're a man or a woman. And they would say, well, here's a boy, and he starts out with male DNA, but perhaps at the age of seven or eight we have to recognize that he feels like a girl. And we wouldn't want to violate his feelings, and so we allow him to live as a girl, and we even suggest that he get hormone treatments or later on surgery and and if he still feels like it, he can be a woman. What a lie. It's the lie of the ages, ladies and gentlemen. Previous generations from 40 years ago would have laughed out loud at the absurdity that anyone would take that seriously in our day and age, let alone that it would sweep the culture and those who say it's a lie would be speaking hate speech. Turn on your recorders. I'm speaking hate speech, according to those folks. 
We've entered a standard in history where people have no standard to differentiate what is true, what is ordained of God, and what is false, and what is just plain a big lie. And our children, how confused they must be. How do they figure out when they go into a classroom and this is what they're taught? Truth about who we are, how we were made, where we are headed, and what is our destiny is not a changeable whim, and it doesn't exist just between our ears. Truth has objectivity. It originates from outside us. The Bible says it originates with God. The Gospel of John says that. I could take you and do nothing else for the next half hour and trace every passage in John that talks about truth. There are a lot of them. Check it out with your concordance. John talks a lot about truth. John talks about the fact by the inspiration of God that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was established in history as an incontrovertible fact. It was true truth, a true event anchored in the reality of our planet and of space and time. And you can go check out the existence of the people like Pilate and Caiaphas and the others who were actually there. They're not fictional characters. Pilate asks this question, and it's an epic question. It comes echoing down the centuries, and it requires an answer by you. What is truth anyway? And you know that Pilate implied there's no such thing. He didn't even wait for Jesus to answer. It says he turned and left because he implied there was no, such, no answer to that. Well, maybe you're starting to see the grass. I can look out and see some actual grass out the church windows here under the snow. Almost time for the lawnmower, folks. That sounds good, doesn't it? Maybe not. I don't know how you regard lawnmowers. But uh, you might come forward to me and say, Pastor, you ought to come over to my house. I have something really wonderful for you to see. I have purple grass. And I'd say, oh, really? What variety of grass is that? Oh, you just have to see it. It's marvelous. It's purple. It's bright purple. But I happen to notice as you tell me this that you're wearing purple lens sunglasses. So it would seem to me that everything in your world is purple. I'm purple. Your grass is purple. Your car is purple because you're wearing purple glasses. If you would just take off the glasses, you would see reality as it is. You would see the objective fact. It is, in fact, green. But today, you see, people have no problem with the fact that somebody goes through all of life wearing purple glasses and deluding themselves about reality. What I'm asking you today is to consider that Jesus Christ is God's truth in a living person not in a theory or a philosophical school of thought. Who he was and what he did in history defines history. He's the measuring rod of what is factual and historic and true because he is God's embodiment of his own truth. That's what the Gospel of John tells us repeatedly. First of all, then, I want to consider what must be one of the most searching questions of all time. Pilate's question, what is truth. Jesus had just said he was king of an invisible kingdom. It made no sense to Pilate. He dealt only with visible kingdoms and had a lot of problems and headaches with visible kingdoms because he was a a high ruler in the hierarchy of Rome, a man born in Spain who 
by the way, rose to his position primarily because he married Claudia Procula, who was a granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. Aha, that's the way to get high position, marry Caesar's granddaughter. But the fact was, Pilate was in trouble back in Rome. Caesar was anxious about him. He wasn't governing Judea very well, and negative reports were coming back that Pilate dealt with the Jews with an iron fist, and they were provoked and rebellious and told Caesar so, and Pilate thought perhaps he was on the verge of being yanked, brought back to Rome. So he was, you know, all sixes and sevens here dealing with these Jewish leaders. If they said something was black, he was going to say it was white. He didn't want to generate more bad reports about himself. He wanted to get out of this condition of dealing with Jesus, his wife, had even had a dream about Jesus and came and said, leave that man alone, don't deal with him. I had a bad dream. I don't think you should bother yourself. So here's Pilate who hears Jesus talk about being on the side of truth and his most cynical nature, the political animal, comes out and he says, what in the world is true? There's no truth objectively, only that which advances me or my situation in the present moment. Expediency, that was truth for Pilate. You see, the Romans had inherited from the Greeks a pessimistic attitude about ever finding ultimate meaning. The Greeks were the philosophers. The Greeks had the higher culture than the Romans did. The Romans came in with military force and co-opted almost everything about Greek civilization, their architecture, their, their law, their science. And uh, Rome did move some of those things forward, of course, but many of them originated with the Greeks. And they inherited the Greeks' pessimistic view of the world and of the universe. Plato, greatest mind among the Greeks, perhaps, who struggled mightily to find out what deep meaning is there in life. I found out an amazing thing about Plato once. He lived 400 years before Christ. So he did not say this quote I'm going to say in a moment, knowing anything about Christ. 400 years before, he was not a Hebrew prophet. But Plato, the Greek, said this, It may be that someday there will come forth from God, the mere fact that he said God was amazing, a word that will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Isn't that great? Plato predicted Jesus Christ. He was not a Jew. He was not a Christian. He did not look for a Messiah. But he said, someday I think there's going to be somebody like what you and I will call Christ. Well, the pessimism of that day is still around. And polls have been taken in our own land, America, and polls that encompass people from every kind of generation, Generation Z to baby boomers to everybody else. And people are asked, do you think there is absolute truth, things that are true all the time, that are never false? Seventy percent of all people, and this has to include some who think they are evangelical Christians, said no. There's nothing that's absolutely true all the time. Pilate and Plato's pessimistic worldview is alive and well in our time, and yet it is absolutely mistaken. 
when it comes to the gospel of Christ. Because secondly, I'd ask you to know that just as Pilate spoke here, his question, what is truth, the living embodiment of all truth stood right in front of him, probably not 10 feet away. For the Bible says truth is a non-negotiable characteristic of who and what God most high is. It's essential to the nature of God that he be true. Back in John 8, 26, Jesus made the claim, he who sent me to you is true. He was saying it's impossible for God to deceive or, or lie. You know, when we talk about God and his nature as it's revealed, we would say, well, I don't want to deny, I don't want to give any negatives about God, but here's a negative that you can rightfully speak about God. He, there's something he cannot do. For all his power and might and absolute authority, God cannot lie. He cannot be untrue. Historic Christian creeds have language that say things like the one living and true God. If you take truth out of his nature, then he's not any longer the creator, the upholder, the ruler of all things. Paul, writing in Romans 3, that epic chapter in the opening of the chapter, Paul said, let God be true if every man proves to be a liar. God must be true or he's not God. And because he's true, he's the only God that's really out there at all. Jeremiah chapter 10 says, the Lord is the true God. He's the eternal God. He's the living king. All false gods are not gods. We use a small g for those who are not gods. All the false gods of the nations are fictions. But now we hear Jesus in John 18, 37, telling Pilate, I came into this world to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth will listen to my voice. Truth is a coherent system of understandings, of principles. Maybe this isn't a great comparison, I'm not sure, but you might think of the idea of the truth of God in its coherent unity as being a great puzzle that solves the mysteries of the ages. And if you have jigsaw puzzles at home, maybe you have some that are like 250 pieces or maybe 500 pieces. Those are not too hard. Uh, Most children can deal pretty well with 500 pieces. Uh, Then you get your tougher puzzles that are like 2,000 pieces They really start getting pretty tough at 5,000. I don't know if they go bigger than that. I'd be occupied a long time over a 5,000-piece jigsaw puzzle. I know that. But think of the truth of God, of, of science, of nature, of human understanding, of history, of literature, all the things that we could speak about that God was involved in bringing into being as this grand puzzle. And, and human beings keep discovering, oh, that little piece of blue sky. I know where that goes, blink, and what we've got is the Human Genome Project. We've diagnosed DNA. Wow, that's a big piece, and another piece, and another piece, and we put God's truth in place. That's what science and medicine are always doing, advancing a little bit. God's always ahead of them, but they advance, and they make progress. Think about the truth of God as the principal governing nature. Why is a birch tree always 
would always have its kind of bark. You always know what a birch tree is. I remember the forests in Minnesota where they're just so common. There are thousands of white birch. We don't see that much around here at all. We know that a birch tree is totally different from a willow tree. What governs that? Well, you can call it Mother Nature if you want, but that's simply a pseudonym for the, the natural principles of order that God has put in his creation. Why is the speed of light always exactly the same speed? What bonds hold atoms together? How is it that we know ocean tides can be predicted, that the tide is going to be in or the tide is going to be out, and you can practically set your clock on that? Why do birds migrate at exact times in the air? For this matter, why is the multiplication table what it is? Why is it always produced the right answers? And people can say, oh, Mother Nature. Well, Mother Nature doesn't explain anything. God explains more. John 18.37 even says that this truth that's in the world was put there by one who was above. And Jesus said, I came from above into the world to bear witness to divine truth, to communicate it. And so everything he would do was according to truth, according to a predetermined pattern and plan of God, the great architect. And so Jesus would say, as he did in John fourteen six, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. There's something operating here that we're not getting, or at least unaided humanity is not getting it. God's truth is the governing principle of all things. So truth was in the action of Jesus going to the cross, being horribly tortured and bleeding and dying over a period of many hours. That was God's plan. We can say, well, the Romans did it, but the Romans did it according to the plan and purpose of God. That's astonishing. And there was that moment that someone recorded as an eyewitness that the Roman centurion who guided the execution, I always think of that man as one of the more hardened veterans you could could imagine. They would put somebody in charge of an execution who was going to make sure he knew how to do it. And how to do it was maximize the suffering and then make sure the victim was dead. And the Roman centurion who carried out Pilate's commission to execute Jesus stood there, and the Scripture says his word at the end was, Truly, this man was the Son of God, a word of truth. Therefore, in summary, we see that Christianity delivers what it promises because it is true and factual and rooted in the depth of the mystery of who God is. The faith of the Bible is a faith that teaches us to trust in a Savior who died in our place and rose in our place that we might die to sin's control and rise to a new life that lasts eternally. You all know what the keystone is. Of course, we call Pennsylvania the keystone state. And you all know the shape of the rock that's like a wedge at the top of an arch. It holds the whole arch together. Take the keystone out and there's no arch. It falls down. Jesus Christ is the keystone in the arch of the truth of God in the Scripture. 
I love the passage in Colossians chapter 1, beautiful, wonderful descriptions of Christ there that Paul wrote in Colossians 1. one seventeen says, He was before all things, and in him all things hold together. He was God's keystone. Everything holds together because of him. Maybe I, this comes out irreverently when I say Christ is like the gorilla glue of creation. It all stays together because of him. God's reality made known in Christ would be just as true if no one believed it, and the agnosticism typified by a Pontius Pilate would be false even if 99% of the population voted for it and said that's right. The vote doesn't matter. The number on one side or the other doesn't matter. Truth is true if it comes from the God of creation and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was divine truth in the flesh, and he stood there before Pilate, and Pilate could turn his face away and walk out and not even wait for Jesus to reply. He was so lost in his jaded cynicism. Remember him washing his hands? I believe it's Luke that tells of that. John does not. And he was just saying, I have no lasting concern with this whole thing. I can walk away. I can go my way. This doesn't matter to me. Oh, it did matter. Pilate, God was hitting you over the head with a frying pan, and you didn't feel it. You didn't understand that that was your moment to confront the truth of the universe, and you lost it. You lost your opportunity. On this Palm Sunday, I plead with you folks to realize that as we proceed as Christians through Holy Week, it's not just that we would have a certain emotional experience. It's not really about emotions. It's about truth. It's about believing that by a God-ordained plan, the Son of God came to earth as the witness of heaven's truth, that by the will of God and plan of God, strange and bizarre as it seemed, he went to that cross according to God's truth and God's plan, and he lay on a cold stone slab until his flesh turned gray or whatever color a dead man is by two or three days dead, and then he medically returned to vibrant life. We are not peddling myths or fables or fantasy tales or philosophers' theories. We are peddling true truth. What happened in history according to the plan and announcement of God. And that is what a Christian is called to believe in. A Bible verse that is very often quoted out of context. This gets used as a generalization for many things that it has nothing to do with. But John 8.32, you will recognize, says this, You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What truth? The answers to a math test? Knowledge of a particular segment of history? uh, Grasping philosophical principles according to Plato or somebody? No. The truth is Jesus Christ. If you know the truth of God in a human body, you will know the gospel of Jesus Christ, which announces to you monumental facts, certifiable truths, having their origin in the deepest reality of all, the mind and heart of the one living and true God. That is what we deal with 
in what Christianity calls Holy Week. I pray you will know how to answer Pilate's question this week. Our Father, it's so amazing for us, Lord, to comprehend that you planned the cross. It wasn't Pilate's idea. It wasn't Caiaphas' idea. They were almost like puppets acting in history. It was your idea. And in the deep mystery of you being the offended God, offended by human sin, here was how to solve it, that the most precious one you had, the one who represented the truth of your own being, came forth and was humiliated and tortured. So we did not need to be. I pray for somebody, Father, who is here. There's somebody here today. I don't know who they are who's never comprehended this, I pray that they would answer Pilate's question with the name of Jesus, my Lord, my Christ, and do it today. Amen.